Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. We're going to do our Bible study there today and open up. It reads, verse 1, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, it's important in the book of Matthew that we understand the progression. So, I thought this is a good time to just do an overview of the book of Matthew. And we got a new person here, so this will catch you up. The book of Matthew is divided. It has an intro and it has a, a climax. And in between, there are five major teachings in Matthew. And Matthew structures his book to be thematic. So each of these sections is progressively walking us through what it's like to be a believer and what are some of the temptations and things we struggle with as believers as we go through. So chapters one through two introduce a new king for a new kingdom. Jesus is the Messiah, makes the argument. Then chapters three through seven talk about this idea that there's a new kingdom that's on earth that, that is going to be the kingdom of heaven, the one that's the eternal kingdom. And it ends or concludes with the Sermon on the Mount, saying, here's, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers. These are the people that get into the kingdom. Then part three, chapters eight through 10, are the power of the kingdom of God. And here's how actually incredible the kingdom of God is. It ends with a teaching on how to be a disciple and count the cost before you get into the kingdom. Like, weigh this out. The kingdom of God is great, but there's a cost to it too. And then part four, 11 through 13 talks about how the kingdom is going to grow. It's going to get bigger. We're going to add some people to this kingdom. This kingdom will eventually be the mightiest kingdom in all of eternity. Um, so then he teaches some parables at the end of that section about how some people are going to be in the kingdom and some people won't be in the kingdom. There are people that go to heaven and people that go to hell. And that's a tough teaching. So as we progressively go through this, the teachings get tougher and tougher. And they get harder and harder for us as humans in our flesh to really soak in. In part 5, chapters 3 through 18, 18's where we're at today, it's what the kingdom looks like as a church. Like, as a kingdom, you people need to get along with each other, and you got to work together. So it ends with chapter 18, which is a set of teachings about how we interact with each other in the church. How does rank happen in the church? How does prominence happen in the church? What does that look like? And then just to finish the summary, part 6 will be 19 through 25. It talks about judgment in the kingdom and how you make the choice to be in the kingdom uh, and do it. And then, of course, the resurrection and, the, and the, uh, the crucifixion. Crucifixion and resurrection are kind of the end of the book or how the book wraps up, which validates or begins the new kingdom. At the end of the book of Matthew, the new kingdom has begun. And it is, it's started or consummated with the king taking his throne. So the entire book progresses along this mature walk it gets more convicting when it hits your level. That's why people love the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. They rarely get into some of these teachings 
because they get more and more convicting. Or when they do get into these teachings, they get misinterpreted they get, because they really aren't there in the kingdom and they don't know how to interpret this. So they have, so it's tough to get there. If this becomes then convicting, great. That means you're probably a pretty mature believer because you're dealing with these issues. You're in the kingdom, you're in the church, you're struggling with some of these things. So as we see this then, it is, if you look at the entirety of the book of Matthew, salvation is a gift that God gives, but discipleship's a way of life that we discipline ourselves towards. Discipline and disciple are the same root word. So we can be saved and we're freed from sin and on our way to heaven. But discipleship is something we have to choose to leave the sin with that freedom that we have. We're able to leave it. Now we got to go leave that sin. In the flesh, we have this ingrained idea um, that the spirits need to work out. So even though we get saved, we still got a ton of stuff we got to unravel that we started with on day one of our birth. That we have to just unpack that and realign ourselves. Paul calls it a new creation. Right? We have to work out our, our faith with fear and trembling. It takes a journey and it takes work. So in salvation, we just say thank you because that's the grace of God. In discipleship, we say yes, sir, or how do we follow Jesus and what does that look like? Uh, the work that we do after we're saved does not save us. And I think that's an important distinction between a works-based theology or a grace-based theology. So the Bible is very clear that we are saved by grace and grace alone. But there's an expectation after we're saved to be part of the kingdom and to grow in the kingdom. And then as we hit this chapter, dealing with this idea of who's greatest in the kingdom and the way Jesus handles it flips everything that's instinctual for us on its head. We think greatest has to do with being the smartest, being the quickest, being the most congenial or, or welcoming at a party. To be the greatest means you're the best looking. To be the greatest means you've lived the longest. You're the oldest and wisest in the room. To be the greatest means you have a rank or a title that puts you above other people. Jesus flips all of that. And look at how he answers this question. You want to be the greatest? Turn yourself into this kid. And so this gets to be a really hard teaching because everything in us wants to be a lot more than a child. We're, you know, Most of us have grown up as we sort out our fear and our faith. So here we are at the end of this section on how to interact with each other, starting with who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, verse 1. The, the disciples asked that. It's a pretty legitimate question. They just got done seeing Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration. So they're thinking, well, Moses and Elijah, they're ranked pretty high, but amongst us 12 disciples, how are we going to rank? Like, where do we fit in the whole, like, ranking system? And so it's, it's not an ungodly question. It's just a question rooted in the flesh. And so I think that we've seen a lot of growth from the disciples. And this is the kind of question you only ask if you care about the kingdom of God. You only ask about how to be awesome and how to be a great servant of Jesus if your heart is in the right place at some level. But their heart is still in the right place, but it's coming from a flesh-based, baked-in mentality. The word greatest there in the Greek is maizan, which means elder or greater in age, which means to rank higher. Like, who's in charge? Um, some people believe Peter was the oldest of the disciples and that that elder status gave him some authority. Uh, we've seen in prior chapters it's not what gave him has any kind of pre uh, preference over the other disciples. It's that he's a willing to make a fool out of himself to answer questions that are burning in his heart. Like, can I walk on water too? That's a child's question, right? Only children ask that sort of thing. And we're going to see the same thing in this chapter. It's Peter that's able to make himself ask the foolish questions because he has to know. 
And if you've ever been around a kid, say age five to seven, it's nonstop questions. And as we deal with Jesus, I think there's a little bit of that too to make ourselves like a child. So Jesus calls a little child to him. That tells us a lot about, by the way, when we read, we don't always see Jesus and, and we can't always trust the, the video or movie presentations of Jesus, but we do see something about the disposition of Jesus that when he calls to some strange kid and the, and the word for kid there is, means like a five-year-old or a little kid, that that kid just comes. Like, doesn't that tell you a lot about like the presence of Jesus, that kids trust him and just walk up? Like something about, kids know they can read something if they can trust somebody or not. A lot of times they, kids will run and hide behind their parents. With Jesus, he says, hey, come here. And the kid just comes right over. And I think that, for me at least, um, it kind of flips that around. But Jesus looks at this kid. The Greek word there is paideon, which it's not padawan, but I, I think that's where they, took that word and but he basically says assuredly or puts that word out there let me make this clear to you all um in verse three assuredly the one of the other times he used assuredly is assuredly you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven so the second time or, or one of the other primary times he uses that assuredly is this so really adding an emphasis to what this is. It's an emphatic word that gets used in the Greek. In other words, listen up, guys. This is really important. You have to be born again to get into the kingdom of heaven. But he's doing the same thing here. It's the same structured sentence. Listen up, guys. You have to be like a child to get into the kingdom of heaven. Something has to change about you. So you can accept God's salvation, but not make him your Lord. You can say, oh yeah, I accept that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that's great. And then you go on living a life that has nothing to do with Jesus. So it, it is a key part of doing the idea of if you want to get to heaven, something has to change about who you follow. So there's an emphatic there, assuredly. Same consequences if you don't do this. You're not going to heaven if you don't do this. So it's the same consequences believing in Jesus as your personal savior. You also have to accept him as your Lord. Which is why in the, in the epistles they say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. There's two components there, two ways that we interact with Jesus. One is to accept salvation. One is to actually make him your king and to serve him like you're a, a servant of a king. Church tradition says this little kid that got pulled over grows up to be a guy named Ignatius who was actually martyred for Jesus. So he grew up to be one of the heroes of the faith in the next generation. That's church tradition. The Bible doesn't give us the name. Oftentimes people take this passage, again, when we get into late Matthew, people really take stuff out of context. And they'll say, oh, I got to be like a child. That means I need to be innocent. That means I need to be, um, I, I need to be like a servant's heart. I need to be playful. I need to be joyful. I need to not have a job. I need to just live life like a kid. You know, I need to like eat mud. I need to like let boogers come down my face and not worry about it. Like, and so they'll read this into like a lot of really weird interpretations. Thankfully, Jesus actually tells us what we're supposed to be like a kid in regards to. You see there where it says, whoever humbles themselves, in verse 4, whoever humbles himself as this little child. So Jesus isn't saying all regards of like anything that we can define as a child, that's what we got to be like. No, he's not saying that at all. In other places, he says you actually need to grow up. Right? And you need to mature. But in the regard of humility, so if we look at a child's humility, you know, it's not just that a lot of times children are seen and not heard, because a lot of times children are heard. But there's a humility to children when they recognize they're not an adult. They're not God. 
and they don't assume that status until they become more adult-like and start convincing themselves that they're more than they are. Humility in that they are not self-conscious in any way, shape, or form. Like, the younger the kid, the less self-conscious they are. Like, there's a humility there. Like, they don't care if they got matching clothes or and they'll just run out naked in their, in their underwear. Like, that's kids with a cape on, right? And, and kids don't get depressed. You don't see a lot of suicidal five-year-olds out there because they don't think about themselves. There's a complete disregard for self-reflection. Like, honestly, kids will have dirt all over the side of their face and that you'll have to tell them they have to go clean it off because there's so little self-awareness there. They don't think of themselves and what other people think of them. Right? They don't care if they comb their hair or do whatever. They don't go buy magazines and look at people like five-year-old Vogue. There's no such thing. It wouldn't sell any magazines because five-year-olds don't care what other people look like or how they dress or how they do, do things. So in the sense of humility, kids don't make an effort to be humble. They just are humble. And that's tough because as adults, we have to make some kind of effort. But fake humility is easy to see through, Right? The weird thing is the world tells us to teach kids as quick as, they can, as we can to be like more self-confident. And, and the world says you need to teach kids to look down in themselves and realize they're all they can be and they can do whatever they want. It's like they want us to teach kids to not be humble as early and as quick as possible. Right? Watch any Disney movie and this happens. And Bridget used to get upset with me because I picked on Disney movies. But it's true. And we're starting to see as a company that they are actively trying to get this idea that you're a little god into the heads of kids. It's all about you. And kids don't naturally think that way. There is a natural humility to most kids. So Jesus, with the Samaritan woman, elevates that, that women are of some of the greatest faith in the church. And here he elevates children. There is an aspect to humanity that's just beautiful. And it's not that one's greater than the other. In fact, if your idea of greatness is there, let's just put a kid here and say that kid's greater than you are just because of their humility. And even asking the question means you don't have the humility because kids don't care who's the greatest. They care who's the most fun. They care who's the most encouraging. They care who is the most joyful and has the best jokes. Like think of what a kid does when they categorize the world. They care about gentleness. They care about love. They care about who gives the best hugs, right? They, they care about things that actually matter in the kingdom of God. So the, the longer we can wait to teach kids about entitlement, about sex, about greed, about materialism, the better it is for that child because they're getting further and further into adulthood as just a normal human being. So Jesus uses the word convert there. You, in the Greek, again, that's to turn oneself around, which means it's not in our nature to be like a humble kid. It is in our nature as we grow up to start to think the world revolves around us. It's all about us all the time. Everything in us wants to do that. So lots of people want to escape hell. Yeah, great. But very few people want to abandon their own greatness and submit to a living God. And it's such a hard thing for us as believers. Like we should be really aware that this is a struggle for us. Our whole system is contradictory to this. If you want to save your life, lose it. You want to be the grace, greatest in the kingdom, be the least in the kingdom. Stop trying to be the greatest. And, and, and let God use you 
And maybe he'll use you in ways that are great, but maybe he won't. Maybe your job's just to work every week, give your tithe, do your job. We were talking about this this weekend. You will by no means enter. There's no way to get to heaven if you can't figure this out. Be warned of this. Be wary of it. You can't get to heaven if you're trying to be in charge. So Jesus, before he answers the question of greatest, which he's going to with the entire chapter, this whole chapter is about who's the greatest. He talks about humility, not, not purity, not maturity, but humility, that that has to happen first. If you, want to, if you want to be the greatest, he is going to answer that question, but you've got to start with humility. It's not about being the greatest. It, it really, really... Verse 4, therefore, whoever humbles himself is the greatest. The more we follow Jesus, the, the more simply kid-like we are in our, in our humility, not in our eating of, of things that are stuck to the bottom of the railing or something like that. Greatness has something to do with how we receive other people in verse 5. Whoever receives. It has something to do with where we position ourselves with others in the kingdom and where we rank in terms of that. So I'm going to give you, in this chapter, I think there's seven basic lifestyle things that Jesus tells us to answer this question. And the first one is be humble, that we get out of these first verses. So lifestyle number one, be humble. And then in verse five, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a, a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's like a bad punishment. Woe to the world because of offenses. Offenses for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. All right, so Jesus is getting, like when he responds to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, that's pretty harsh. He starts out with the, with the child thing there. And remember, the kid is still standing in the midst of them when he says this next part, woe to you. So he's backing them off of this thought of trying to be the best. Stop doing it. So he says, whoever receives one little child. In verse 5, the little child, there's actually a different word. It's not paideon. It's a different word, which basically means littles or, or small person, Right? like a baby faither. So he generalizes this term from little child to small. And in that generalization, he's talking about new believers. And so who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, we have to think about how we receive new believers. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven know how to do it well. And the lowest in the kingdom of heaven don't even care about the new believers. Or worse yet, they despise them as we're going to see later on. So a little one here is, you know, a generalization about the kingdom of God. And remember, he's talking to disciples about how to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. We're not talking about unbelievers anymore. We're talking about believers and inside the church. So in my name receives me, the word receives there is a beautiful word. It means to take someone by the hand. It's super simple, humble. It's not impressive, but it's to joyfully accept other believers and when we accept other believers, even immature believers, it has to make us kind of humble because we got to remember what we were like when we were new believers. When we accept new believers, we're assuming that we're one of them. 
And we're walking side by side. When you take somebody's hand, you're walking side by side with them. You're not leading, you're not following, you're side by side. We're supposed to be following Jesus, but we're supposed to be walking with each other as we go into the kingdom. There's an obedience to that idea. We do it in Jesus' name. So we don't do it because it's something we want to do. We do it because Jesus tells us to do it. This is the power of the church. It's how we receive each other. So when somebody new walks in the door, are we joyful when we receive them? And I was watching this today. And yes, we are. When somebody new comes, it's like, hey, welcome. And that's joy. Is there enthusiasm? How does a kid welcome somebody new that they like? I love you. And they hug their leg. So we, we don't need to do that. But there is that idea that we do hug one another. We do touch. We connect with people. Are we obedient to God in doing that joyfulness? I know kids that when they see people come over that they remember from last time, they literally bounce up and down. And you can't fake that kind of enthusiasm. You can't. And when you fake it, you're a hypocrite. And Jesus already talked about hypocrites. Don't fake this. Let God do a work in you so that when you see somebody you've been praying for all week and you're praying for their salvation, you're praying against temptation in their life, you're covering them in prayer, and then they show up to church, you're just ecstatic. Oh, I'm glad they made it. So Katie's sick this week. She's not with us, right? So we're praying for her all week, right? May she get her health back. And when she comes back, even though she's a long-timer, like it's, yay, you're back, you're healthy. And there's that, when kids see people they love, they exude that love. Lisa, your grandkids are like that. They're just all over you. And it's great. We need to receive people with that kind of humility. It's not about us. It's about them. The contrary is what we tend to do. As we get more mature in our faith, we meet new believers, and all we want to do is instruct them and tell them what they're doing wrong or how they need to fix this or stop that or start doing this or, oh, I got the solution for you. It's everything in us wants to just fix all their problems overnight, but we're denying God his right through the Holy Spirit to change that person in God's timing. We're presuming that role. And we've seen Jesus get on the disciples' case about presumption. So our job is to receive, not to legalize, not to guilt trip, not to instruct. The instruction happens with the teaching of God's words. And people are like, oh, I got to work on that. And that takes years. It doesn't take days. Right? One of the most heartbreaking things for me in the world is a brand new believer that shows up to tr church and all they get is what they need to fix or what they got to change. Oh my goodness. We are not humble like little children receiving people when we do that. These little ones who believe in me is the wording that's there. That's any of us. That's the church. We all believe in Jesus. And we're little in our humility. If we're like children, we are the little ones. And he takes it personally when somebody throws a little one off course, a course set by God himself. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and to sin is to take your eyes off Jesus. I, let's, let's really be not reading this like we've read it a million times. One of these little ones, a believer in God who believes in me to sin, and to sin is to take our eyes off Jesus or follow anything other than Jesus. So if you're a mature believer trying to be the greatest in the kingdom and you're trying to coach new believers on what to do, beware of what you're doing. Because if they do what you tell them to do, they're not following Jesus. Again, those with ears to hear, let them hear. 
It is better for that person to have a millstone hung around their neck. A millstone's bigger than a person. Like if you've ever been to a, a, an old school like flour mill, the, the idea here is you get that tied around your neck and you're thrown in the water. You don't just go to the bottom. You go to the bottom like a bullet and you don't come back up. And, and it, there's so much force against you when you act like that, you will have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Verse 7, woe to the world because of offenses. The world's going to cause people to sin all the time. Woe to them. Offenses must come. I'm going to allow that because I want to sort out who the wheat and the tares are. But woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Don't be that person. Our job is to receive people and point them to Jesus. Amen? I'm being, I'm being strong with my language right now because Jesus is being strong with his language. Don't do this. The word offense there is scandalon, a trap, a snare, a stumbling block, an impediment to others. Anytime we tell people anything other than the word of God, I think it's perfectly okay to say, the word of God says this, the word of God says that. If there's a clear sin, like people are shacking up together before they're married, stop doing that. You know, you're not supposed to commit adultery, you're committing adultery. The word of God says you're not supposed to do that. When we start saying what we think they should do or not do, even as at, at low a level as, oh, you got to read this book. We got to be careful with suggestions we make to people because we don't want them to take their eyes off Jesus. But keep your eyes on Jesus. And if this helps you get there, great. Lifestyle number two, receive others. Don't be the stumbling block in their life. Our job's to welcome, not to tell them what to do. And I, I think that's tough for believers. And some of you might even be resisting that teaching right now because you're like, but I like telling people what to do. And Jesus is saying, whoa, beware of that instinct. It's in the flesh. It's not good. And, it, and it's something that can get you tripped up. And you don't want to be that person. Verse 8, he goes on with another thought. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better to enter the, into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet than to be cast into the everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. That's really extreme language. He's using a, the extreme language to make his point. It's better for you to enter life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. That's pretty harsh, right? You can't get in the way of other people's growth. We've got to read this in context. This is people in the church dealing with other people in the church. If, Jesus, if you're Jesus' disciples, then take radical steps to help people that are furthest away from Jesus. To love them, to support them, to encourage them, to be a cheerleader when they do things. They show you the little spiritual crayon drawing that they did. You're like, praise God, you did it. You know? The greatest person in the church, think about this. If these are the extreme actions Jesus wants us to take before we stumble another believer, if it's that serious, the, the greatest person in the kingdom of God is the most vulnerable person in the church. We take all of our energy and efforts to help the newest believer. We go way out of our way to help that new believer. That makes them the greatest. They get the most attention. The world does it the exact opposite. The most attention goes to whoever's on the stage. Everybody points their attention to whoever's on the stage. In the church, we don't do that. We need somebody on stage because we want to hear the word of God. But once that word of God's done, the important work of the church starts. We serve and we receive 
other people in the church. We take care of each other. We pray for one another, right? That's the work of the church. It's not just the single part of the body that teaches the word. That person doesn't get all the attention. Thanks for your part of the body, but we need a lot of people to receive others. There's a whole work to be done. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, To know what sin is, this assumes that his disciples know what God's word is. The only definition of sin that exists is in the law. So if we say if your hand or foot causes you to sin, Jesus is assuming there that they know what the word of God is. So this is a huge issue today. We can't can't really fall into this because a lot of believers don't even know what the book says. They haven't even read it. And that's something we got to be working that. So much less to deal with our own sin, just being humble. We have to take up an attitude here. If we know what's going on and we, we can discern what sin is because we actually know the law. We know the 10 commandments. We know what God said. So Jesus isn't talking about mutilating your body here. I, I hope you get that. You don't see that any of the disciples mutilated themselves based on this teaching. No one that heard this teaching went off and mutilated themselves, but every one of them struggled with this idea of pride. All of them did. Jesus is making a point here. This is, a, this is an issue where we humble ourselves, we receive the new believers, and then we have to deal with our own sin. And we have to do it. It's serious business to take care of your own sin. I do know people that have gotten rid of like physical objects and computers and things that cause them to sin. When I first got saved, I had this entire, well, it turned into a trash bag full of, of secular music. And I realized if I leave that stuff in the house, I'm just going to pop Motley Crue back in the tape player and feed my head all the garbage again. And so I was like, in order for me to grow in the faith, I got to get rid of this stuff. And I threw away some really, like, I won't say it was, I really loved some of that music, right? And I threw it away and I was like, okay. And then I went crazy because I had to listen to the 80s. Christian music was not the best kind of music out there. But I'm sitting there trying to find something I can tolerate. Thank, thank you, Lord, for Petra. And, 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 but I had to get rid of it. You've got to be serious about what causes you to stumble in your walk and get, deal with it and deal with it extremely. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Stop the sin before you start dealing with other people. Satan can do so much more damage inside the church than outside the church. Secular world can do whatever they want. We stand apart from them. But when people come into the church and they're not received, nobody cares about them. Nobody loves them. Nobody says, hey, man, I've been, thanks. You came a second week. I was praying for you all week. Like there's something about how we receive people that makes us stand apart from the world. But boy, if I come to church for the first time and I got people that try to get to know me and they're just cornering me and they're grilling me with questions, I don't feel welcomed. I feel judged. And it's a, it's a horrible thing that Satan can do by taking our pride because Satan comes like an angel of light. It feels good to us to do this. And Jesus is saying, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Deal with that. Stop taking my sheep and abusing them. When they come into the church, make them feel welcome. That's your command. That's what you need to do. So be humble. Don't be a stumbling block to others. Be a receiver. And not, lifestyle number three, deal with your sin. Deal with yourself, don't deal with other people. Wrestle with what you have to wrestle with. 
you're going to be a, you're going to start to be greater in the kingdom. And then he gets into the lost sheep, which fits right in, right? He's just showing them what this looks like. Ten, though, I would say verse ten is a slightly different point. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Wow, what a sentence. I wonder if the disciples heard that come out of his mouth and were like, wait, what did he just say? Like he's giving us a glimpse. He's giving us a glimpse of what heaven looks like and how it operates. It's not just some weird spacey place. And the angels don't seem to have little baby faces and wings and little heart-shaped arrows. We get a glimpse of the spiritual realm that the ones who are serving or the angels that have charge over these new believers, they have first rank in the kingdom of heaven. So if we want to be aligned with God's will, we too put our attention and prayer on the least of these in our church. They become the greatest. They're the most important. Um, but this idea of ministering spirits, Hebrew 1, 4, Hebrews 1.14 says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? In other words, God does have angels assigned to people with a job to minister to us. If we're falling away from the faith, we'll see things happen where God's trying to bring us back into the kingdom. The more mature believers we are, the less of that happens sometimes. We see it happen to the church, but God doesn't do it individually with us as much because we're on the right path, and that's a good thing. When we start to stray, God will put things in our life where we're like, was that God working there or a ministering spirit? Hebrews 11. So we get a sense that there's not just God on our side, that there are actual angels that are working for us and trying to move us towards God. Be humble. Don't stumble others. Deal with your sin. Now the instruction is to not despise. In Greek, uh, the word despise there is to think less of, to disdain or despise. At first, is is like you should minister and receive these new believers, but here it's don't despise one of these little ones. So, and then the word there in, in verse ten to take heed, you need to actually intentionally be warned and wary of this. So these aren't just like the new believers that look like us and talk like us. These are the new believers that maybe we don't want to be around. Right? We're not interested in spending time with them because they bore us with their worldly conversations. Right? All they want to talk about is the, the, the Vikings. And as believers, as, as you get more mature with believers, trust me if you're not there yet, like a bunch of grown men crossing a chalk line stops being interesting to you. But new believers, that's what they worship. It's what they're into. So sometimes engaging with people versus despising them is a way to receive them. And this is a, this is a there's no legalism around this. It's a spirit-led kind of activity that sometimes we make small talk with people because it's how we receive them and we show them that we love them. We don't have to engage in their worship in order to hear and listen to them and to engage. It's part of the beginning of discipleship is to build an actual relationship. You can't disciple people if they don't jump up and down like a giddy child when they see you. Like if they're not happy to see you, there's no discipleship happening. So loving people has to do with actually liking them. And I got to say, in my own walk, it took me 10, 15 years. I remember at one point I was reading a book about like workplace networking and how to connect with people. And the first chapter is you actually have to like people. 
And so I put the book down, I turn to my wife, and she goes, don't you like the book? And I'm like, I love the book, but i got to figure out the first chapter before I can go to chapter two. Don't despise one of these little ones. Jesus puts an emphasis on a single person. It's not about numbers. It really isn't about the numbers. It's about one person. Don't let yourself despise them. But what if they stink? What if they came to church with alcohol in their breath? What if they don't like the sports teams we like? What if they never go out and do any kind of ministry and they should be? Darn it, they should be. What if they're just boring people? What if they're a little nuts? Like we've met people, they're a little nuts. I'm one of them. What if they're boorish in conversation and they don't know how to do turns of talk? Right? It's those kinds of people that irritate us that Jesus is saying specifically, take heed that you don't despise one of these little ones. When you come into the body of believers, it's that person you don't like that God wants you to take heed to figure out a way to like them. I think that's what's the most powerful thing about the church is when people walk in and go, how do these people like each other? They're all over the map, these people. How does this even happen? For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. This is what God cares about. It should be what we care about. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Care about what God cares about. Pay attention to it. That's why Jesus came. He came. He came into the lowest possible birth, lowest possible station, from the lowest possible region of Israel. And he built an entire kingdom from there because he sought to see, save people and serve people. He just started healing people, telling them about a new kingdom. The lost don't know that they're lost. Uh, honestly, I didn't know I was lost before I found Jesus and started serving him as my king. Before I turned, I didn't know how lost I was. we got to have some patience for that with people. They don't know how lost they are. We can tell them, but they have to choose to change. First is they got to choose salvation, but just because they said a prayer doesn't mean they understand how lost they are. That's why so many seeds go right back to their sin afterwards. Jesus then says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 to go to the mountains to seek the one that's straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, is it not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish? I'm sorry, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that even one of these little ones should perish. Little one being a new believer. He doesn't want any of these seeds to not take root and grow. He's done everything he can in the Holy Spirit to get them into the body. Keep them in the body. Love these people. Pray for them. Our tendency is to lecture them or to reject them or ignore them and hang out with our clique, our friends. God values each person. Think of the principle here. Luke 15, when you see the one sheep and the lost, it's about unbelievers. And God's going to do everything he can do to get an unbeliever into the church. In context with this Matthew, it's, it's virtually the same parable, but with a very different context. He's talking about inside the church, new believers not getting lost. Or believers that fall astray, as the word Matthew uses, that don't go astray. The emphasis then is on a caring church community. And, and the, again, thematically, Matthew's progressing us through a walk of the faith. He's assuming we believe Jesus. He's assuming we've, we're saved. 
and he's assuming that we're going to start to do things as a church and operate as a church because that's the heart of the kingdom. But we got to have a heart like Jesus and know that the greatest person in the church is the one we're all focused on for serving. And in the world, that's the most powerful person in the room. In the kingdom of God, it's the weakest person in the room. But we're all focused on serving and helping that person get their life in order and get straightened. We're all pointing them to Jesus. Like we point a caring... So I'm horrible at this. I'm a bad example. When, when the kids learn to drive, they both went to mom to learn to drive. Because when I get in a car with people that don't know how to drive, I'm grabbing the door. I call it my dear Jesus handle up above. My feet are stretched out against the floor because all I can see is that we're crashing. We're going to crash. Katie ran a red light at a busy intersection and I was like, ah! And that was the thing where she just said, I can't drive with you, dad. And I was so like hurt, but she was right and I was wrong. When a new believer comes into church, all we can do is just go, yes, you're going to crash. What you're doing so horrible. And when we do that, we're not trusting God at all. We're not trusting that God brought that person into the church. God's going to help that person come closer. And he's hopefully going to use us to help do that. But what he commands us to do is receive the person. And then they start talking about, you know, empty pursuits, vain things. They're not sin. They're just vain and empty and they're a waste of time. And all we want to do is tell them what a waste of time that is. Our command is not to confront people. Our command is to love people. Humility, bear with each other. We have a couple options in that situation. Is that We can obey the will of our Father that not anybody perishes, that when they come, they feel welcome. But we also have to understand that we love people even when they're, they're going astray. We keep that love on. Keep the prayers going. Lifestyle number four. Minister to others. Serve and put ourselves in a place where we can help other people's lives better. What can we do? To, can we pray for you? Can we hang out with you? You want to go out for coffee? You know, what can we do to give you the fellowship and community you need in life? And if the whole church is doing that all the time, there's no way that a new believer has any impression that they're not totally welcome in the church. This is the place to grow. Oh, but I'm, I'm such a sinner. I got so many things messed up. I'm so screwed up. Yeah, me too. I'm with you. And I lower myself. I got stuff I'm working on too. We all do. Everybody here is broken. Because you got to be broken to be humble. And you got to be broken to accept the salvation and the gift of Jesus Christ. Because he was broken for us. He did it first. He humbled himself and humiliated himself. And allowed himself to be humiliated. Because he loved us. And we do the same thing. This is a tough theology to get our heads around. In action. Then you got sinning brothers. Huh. Well, that's the people that go astray. What about the people that like offend us and hurt us? What about those people? Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, your brother, this is another person in the church, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a tough passage. In basic day-to-day -day interactions, 
I don't think this is, this is not necessarily a command to confront people. The, the context of this is to love and minister to people, right? But there are people that are so, they're in the church, but they're so offensive to other people that they cause division. And you got to deal with that. And part of how you deal with that is if somebody is offensive to you, you just go tell them, hey, I was really offended by that. I think what you did is sin. Here's where it says in the word of God not to lie about people. And you just lied about me. Why'd you do that? And that's a confrontation. But our, one option is to not be easily offended, to be long-suffering, to be patient. I think option number one is to let it go. And not, we, it, So this isn't a command that every single sin against us, we have to go and fight or combat. We have the choice to just let stuff go. That's option one for a believer, and Jesus has already taught that. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers just make peace. That's a blessing too. But if you're in this situation where somebody's really sinned against you, they've broken the law against you, first of all, there's, there's consequences when you break the law in the church. Like there, There's civic consequences. If you murder somebody, you're going to go to jail. But with Jesus, it's about the heart. How do we deal with murderers, right? Are we willing to welcome a murderer into our fellowship? That's a tough question, isn't it? How do we deal with people that are sinners, have actually committed sins? We actually are sinners too. First, be humble. Remember that. The other side of this, and notice he says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There is nothing in that language that allows us the possibility of going to another human being with an issue or being the advocate for another human being. The world does this all the time. Well, if you're uncomfortable addressing that with so-and-so, I'll go address that with so-and-so. That's advocating. That's absolutely not biblical. Or let me go talk to my friend about so-and-so to confirm or see, you know, in godly gracious. I just want to see if that person's offensive to them too. Does that person offend you? That's called gossip. And it's also completely unbiblical. Everyone who gossips, especially believers, they don't think they're gossiping. They think they're just caring about people. But they're talking about people without them there. Tell them that person the fault between you and him. There's, you could say him or her there. That's, it goes both ways, ladies. If somebody's bugging you or bothering you, just tell them. When you eat and you open your mouth while you eat, that is not a sin. Get over it. It's when they sin against you, go tell them. Hey, when you put me down every Sunday in front of everybody... I really feel like at some level you're, you're lowering me. You're murdering me to, in the eyes of other people. You're, you're taking my character and taking it down a notch. And I don't appreciate that. Can you stop doing that? Oh, I'm, the right Christian response is, I am so sorry. I, it's over. I'll never do that again. And then you've gained a brother in verse 15. Now we got somebody. There's nothing better than a brother who can just tell you when you're off the rails. And they bring you right back. Lisa, you talk about the leash thing and you go running off and then you hit the end of the leash and bam, somebody snaps you back. In love, a leash is because you love that dog and you don't want him to run off, right? In practice, the world just sees that as like authority and you're submitting. No, 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 no. If my brother tells me I've hurt him and they can tell me in the word where I've sinned against him, I don't want to do that ever. I never want to be that person. So I'm so sorry. I don't want to do that. I didn't try to do that. It won't happen again. 
I'll be a lot more careful. The other response is a sinner who says, I didn't sin against you. That's not a sin. That's not a problem. You're the one with the problem. Then the next thing, verse 16, take with you two or more. Now the danger of that is when you bring in two or more other believers and they hear the case between two people, it could actually turn back on you. Usually the person getting offended is the sinner in the, in the arrangement, right? So when you bring in other people, it's having like a, a small court, but it's still keeping it at a low level. And then verse 17 is the third level. We're going to tell the whole body, hey, I got to, sorry, I got to do this before the teaching today. We've had an issue about this and that. Here's where we're at. Here's where the church stands on that issue. So if you don't agree with that, please leave. You don't need to be in our church because I'm showing you from the word. We as a church all agree on this. Yes, we agree on it. Okay, that's the way we're going to go on this particular behavior. And what Jesus is doing is establishing a leadership structure in the church. You want to be the greatest in the church? Deal with things, verse 15, on your own. Verse 16, trust other people, even if that might point back at you. Verse 17, bring stuff to the whole church. And at that point, there is no greatest. The church is working as a body. And we all kind of do that together. And then this is one to be wary of. If that person, I first of all, as a believer, I can't imagine things ever getting to the level of verse 17. Yet I've been in a church where they do get to that level. And the person was asked to leave by the elders and they had to go to the whole church and say, hey, we had to ask somebody to leave. Here's why. Here's what we did. Here's why we did it. Here's the scripture that backs up what we did. And if anybody has an issue with that in the church, we're cool. You can go to another fellowship. But we don't. this is something where we've thought about it, we've prayed about it, we're decided on it, and this is the direction we're going on it. And that's kind of a church leadership structure. But the idea of greatest there kind of goes away. And to treat somebody like a heathen or tax collector doesn't mean we hate on them. Matthew was a tax collector. It means we treat them like an unbeliever. They, they've shown such a hard heart. They had a friend tell them that they were offending them and then they didn't care. They had a group of believers say, man, you're offending me and they don't care. They had the whole church agree and they're like, I don't care. I'm going to do it my own way. This person is so the least in the kingdom, but they think they're the greatest because they're not accountable to anybody. So they're acting like the world tells them to act, but they're not acting like a humble child in the kingdom. Honestly, if both parents sit down with a kid and say, knock it off, the kid generally knocks it off. You know, add social pressure with a teenager, verse 17, and generally you can get a kid to get on the right path. So 18 then sums that up. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth and loose on earth, in rabbinical tradition, binding and loosing is what the civic judges would do at the gate of the city. So when a situation came up that they had to use the law to discern what it was, to bind or loose was to bind or loose a certain behavior. So there was a transition in the church about men wearing belts and women wearing skirts down to their ankles for Sunday mornings. At some point, the church made some decisions on that, and they loosed the behavior that you can wear shorts to church if you want to, or that you can wear denim. And that's The church basically loosed the behavior that we're not going to be legalistic about that kind of thing. Or they could bind the behavior and say, hey, as a church, here's a, a behavior that there's nowhere in the Bible that says it's sin, but this is where we're at on this. And that can be with some of like social practices or taking certain kinds of medicines, drugs, alcohol, smoking. Smoking's not in the Bible as a sin. But as a church, we're going to try to, as a body, we, don't, we, we think that's something we want to stop doing because our body's a temple. 
So you're binding that behavior and you're loosing these behaviors because they're not clearly specified in the Word of God. The church has some discernment on what to do with that. All right, that's a long way to say um, that Jesus gives the church a way to deal with things without having like a greatest in there, right? There's a community way to deal with things. So the fifth lifestyle thing in this chapter is we got to be ready to forgive other humble people and and we got to be willing to exit sinners if they refuse to kind of deal with the word of god as we read it as a community that's cool you can go to another community another church but this is how we as a church are going to read the scriptures on this and that allows jesus to have different kind of churches in different parts of the world to address and meet the needs of different kinds of people and that historically is exactly what's happened so Verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. Oh, this is great. So in one sentence, he adds the sixth lifestyle, which is we got to pray together. It says where if two of you agree, there is no solo player in the church. You want to be the greatest? You got to find one other person to pray with you. I, you know, again, this is all that answering the question, why, who's the greatest? And he tells you to work, his answer to that, with the kids still standing in the middle, is be humble, right? Don't cause other people to sin. Deal with your own sin. Be ready to forgive people. And pray with other people. If two of you agree, the word there, agree, is in the Hebrew, or in the Greek, it's symphonize. It's the same root word as having an orchestra or a symphony. Symphonize. We can have different people in the body, but we have to be together on the song. We can have different gifts of the Spirit, but we have to be, get, to be together on following Christ. To symphonize, you can play different instruments, but you've got to be doing the same song. You gotta, we're all under one... Or, one um, oh my goodness, what's the name of the person who leads the orchestra? Conductor. Under one conductor. I think every week I forget a, a word that should be in my head. This is nearly impossible to do this in the world when everybody's playing their own music, leading their own lives. The end result of that is disharmony, chaos, and definitely not very good music. But in the church, if we're all following Jesus, sometimes songs start to emerge from that because we're all working together and it's all clicking. He says he'll give people anything they ask if they do this. If you can get two people to agree to pray about something and it's in line with God's will... Like, God's will is to unleash that and to make it happen. And so this idea that two people, again, it's not about numbers. There's nothing here about a single person, but there's lots in the scriptures about two people doing things. If five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword, Leviticus 26.8. There's nothing that's beyond the church if you got two or more people willing to pray the same things. Nothing. And it's the way Jesus puts this out there is as extreme as the cut off a hand, pluck out an eyeball stuff. If the two of you agree on concerning anything that you ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. That's a powerful statement. It's an extreme statement. Deal with your sin extremely. Pray together extremely. The principle here is we should be praying together. And I look at so many churches, we've visited so many churches that don't actually pray together. 
some greatest on the stage might pray and we all have to listen to them. But the idea of actually praying for each other virtually never happens. Or you've got to be in the elite group that goes to this elite meeting to do that. But the, the, the daily working of the church, people should be praying together. And Satan loves when churches don't do that. Because then you never get this situation where the will of the Father is actually being done on the earth. It's amazing. So lifestyle number six, pray together. Then verse 20, you get a whole other one. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Remember the last time we saw the word midst was he put the kid in the midst of them. And so the kid's still standing there for this teaching. I just love the imagery of that. Gathered there is the word synago. It's the Greeks' use of the Hebrew word for synagogue. So the Greeks just use the same, just like we do in English, we say synagogue. So the word gathered there is actually synagogue, or I think we should read it that way. To collect or draw people together to assemble. For where two or three are synagogued together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. If we do things in the name of Jesus, therefore it's not an actual Jewish synagogue, it's a church. They just don't have the word for church yet. So if we're meeting for Jesus, that's not a synagogue. It's a church. And so it's essential to gather. It's essential to gather in his name. And then you say, well, what does it look like to gather in his name? And what does that seem like? Acts 2.42 says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They read the word. And in fellowship, they received one another. And in the breaking of bread, they ate together. And in prayers, they prayed together. It's the same teaching we got in this chapter. That's what it looks like when God's people gather together. We eat great food, we study the word, we fellowship, we pray. And then God changes our lives. I just can't believe that's all it takes for God to work in our life. I still, am, I still think that's the greatest miracle. Yeah, sure, resurrection, whatever. God can resurrect people. He made, a, he made Adam from the dust. I don't have a problem with that. The flood, yeah, God can make that happen. The fact that all that God wants from me is to fellowship, eat good food, pray, and study the word, and then he does a wonder in me, that's a miracle I know firsthand. I know I'm not the guy I was even a year ago, even five years ago, especially not the guy I was 30 years ago. I'm not that guy. And I didn't do it on my own power. God just did something new in me. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. And when he's there, there's living water to be drank. There's the bread of life to be eaten. When Jesus is there, it all comes together. When Jesus is there, we grow and we get healed. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Okay, the answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So when Peter says, who's the greatest? And he says, if you guys all gather in my name, I'll be there. I'm the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Like, that's legit. Lifestyle number seven, go to church. Like, make the commitment and be there faithfully. And it doesn't have to be huge. It's If there's two or th three people doing it in the name of Jesus and they're following the word of God, that's the kind of communities he wants us in. I'm struggling with the idea that a church could be, a, that's even possible for a church to be 1,000, 2,000, 14,000 people. That, that seems like a lot of people gathering, but I don't know that that's what is described in the scriptures as a church. It's, it's a gathering, that's for sure. Um, is the ministry happening? Are these things going on? Are they praying together? Are they humbly forgiving one another? Do they even know each other? You know, and, and so I think that's one of the things that Satan loves to see that happen. So we just got done talking about that stray person. 
in, in the lost sheep in verse 12. And verse 15 through 17 is people that stray. So if they keep screwing up and they keep offending us, they keep dividing and stumbling us, then what? And I think that's where, like, the interesting part is Peter asks a really logical question here. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus says to him, I don't say to you up to seven. I do not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. (coughs) (coughs) So I love that Jesus uses the foolishness of Peter because he's childlike and honest to teach us things. Peter's just willing to ask the question that the rest of them are all thinking because they're still in the flesh a little bit. Who's going to be the greatest? And he's like, I'm the greatest. You guys just need to gather and minister and receive and be humble. That's the arrangement. And then Peter's like, okay, well, like, how many times do I need to forgive people? How many times do I go after lost sheep? How many times do I do that? And Jesus is going to use this instance to give us an insight of the heart of God. And from God's perspective, this is a really silly question. And hopefully we all, like, we're reading through Matthew and we've, we know this. Peter, by the way, is suggesting seven is pretty impressive. The Jewish tradition was you forgive somebody three times and then they're done. So if if in the synagogue you sinned against somebody and there's three occasions, you're out of the synagogue. So Peter's like, so we go to seven. So the number three is complete. Peter's suggesting the number seven, divine perfection, seven forgivenesses, and we're good. And Jesus is just like, you know, it's... It's not a legalistic number of times that you forgive somebody. That's not the point. It's a disposition he wants us to have of forgiveness all the time, that we have the nature of forgiveness. The idea of 70 times 7 actually got used in the Old Testament. Genesis 4.24, on the opposite side, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech 70 and sevenfold. In that case... Cain and Lamech were like the curses that they would bring would be just eternal, right? So the idea of 70 times 7 is like there's no limit to the amount of aggravation Lamech would bring to this planet. It just goes on forever. And Jesus flips that here by using the same phrase. It's the only other use of it in the Bible. When I say to you 70 times 7, the idea is there's no limit to the amount of times that you're going to just forgive people. Unless you actually are like, type A, and you start chalking off 490, you know, but the idea is there's no end to how many times you need to forgive. So Jesus, again, brings it back to the heart. Like, how do you reconcile with people? You do it as much as it takes. There is a difference, though. How do we reconcile verse 22 with verse 17? In verse 17, you send them out like a heathen or tax collector. You get them out of the church but we're going to forgive them as many times as we can. So that seems almost like a conflict, but only from an earthly sense. Just because we send a tax collector out the door and we say, you need to go find a new fellowship, doesn't mean we don't love them. doesn't mean we don't forgive them. doesn't mean they can't come back and repent and rejoin us, right? The forgiveness happens when people ask for forgiveness. So there is, it's one thing to be reconciled to somebody. It's another thing to forgive somebody. And our hearts should be to always forgive people. We forgive by default. Whether or not that person's reconciled to our body, that's a different question, right? Whether or not they have to 
go to prison and there's courts in our civic system that actually make them pay for certain sins, we can still pray for them in jail. We can still go visit them in jail, but they're not attending our church anymore. There's consequences. So this idea that Jesus frames this in such a way, but he does it like I've always heard these verses in totally different teachings with totally different points. But when you put them all together, chapter 18 is like, this is how the church kind of operates. This is how we deal with each other one-on-one in the church. And our default should be to just love and forgive as, as much as it takes. Right? So we have people over to our house and they stole something. Okay, maybe they needed it more than we did. Let it go. Is it against the law? Yeah, it is. Hey, you stole something. Give it back. I didn't steal anything. I didn't do that. Yeah, we know you did. We got you on camera. No, I didn't, didn't do it. Okay, we're going to bring two more, three people. They're going to watch the footage from the camera. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. I didn't do it. That camera's all wrong. Okay, we're going to show the footage to our old church. Here's this person. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, first, first of all, they got to be pretty hard-hearted to do that, and we can still be soft-hearted and forgive them. No, we forgive you. We're not going to worry about it. I'm not reporting it to the cops. I'm not going to get into that. But you can't come here anymore because we can't trust you. You know, you're not repenting of this. And we can't come in. You can't be continuing to lose our forks, right? It was early on, we like, we went from having like 10 forks down to like two forks. And we're like, who in the world is taking all our forks? And the next week, you know what happened? We had other believers that showed up and they brought us forks. And we now have more forks than we had before. That's the body of Christ. That's, maybe those people really needed the forks. You know, and we didn't have cameras, so we have no idea. If somebody who took them is in the room right now, we forgive you. We love you. You use those forks. Maybe give them to other people and bless them. Therefore, verse 23, he's wrapping up his teaching. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. There will be a judgment day. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's the equivalent of like $7 million, right? <laughs> But he was not able to pay, no kidding. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The, the phrase there, to be sold, is in the first century, if you were in debt and you couldn't pay it, you went to prison and you worked, and then the payment for your work went directly to who you owed the money to. But $7 million, you could go to jail for 100 years and you're never going to pay that back. But he sends him to prison. That's justice, verse 25. Verse 26 And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. That's almost comical. No, you won't. You're never going to pay that much money. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. That's mercy. Verse 25 is justice. Verse 27 is mercy. Ah, we'll let it go. It's just money. Have patience with me. It's In verse 26, have patience with me. It's not an issue of patience. (laughs) Like, if I wait for 20 years, you're never going to pay me my $7 million. It's not a question of patience. It's a question of the ability to pay the debt. And I love that Jesus sets it up this way because the character wants forgiveness in this story. And what he asks for is patience. I remember doing that as a new believer. Lord, just have patience with me and I'll get this sin handled. I'll stop snapping at people. Just be patient with me. And it's not an issue of patience. It's that I'm never able to beat sin on my own. I have to rely on Jesus to do that. And it's not about God's patience. It's about his forgiveness. It's not about our works and how good we do for God. 
It's about whether or not God forgives us. And the same thing's true here. It's not about the master's patience. It's about the idea that he forgives him in verse 27. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So a denarii is uh, a day's wage for a common laborer. So we do work by the hour. They did work by the day. And a denarii is one day of work. So a hundred denarii is nothing to snap at. That's three and a half months worth of work. But if I said to you, be patient with me and I'll pay it off, it is possible for me to work that off. Like I could work for three and a half months and get the money and pay you off. It just takes patience in that sense. It says, took him by the throat. In the Greek, that's a half choke or to throttle to the point where the air gets cut off. So he's holding their life in his hands. And Peter asks how many times to forgive a brother, and Jesus just switches the perspective. Therefore I say to you, their sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little, Luke 7, 42. If we're forgiven a lot, we should be willing to forgive a lot. We're forgiven a debt we can't pay. We're forgiven the $7 million. So when Peter asks this, how many times do we forgive? It's like, Peter, dude, I just forgave you $7 million. You, the, and you're asking how much should I forgive others? Okay, just forgive. It's a disposition. It's not an amount. So he flips it around. Verse 29 then says, So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. Notice that the plea that's made is an identical plea to the first person. It's the same exact plea. Only here it's not comical because he could be patient with him and get it paid off. If we're patient with other humans about sin, is it possible that they could work that sin out of their life? Absolutely. If they do things that annoy us, is it possible that, that might, they might start chewing with their mouth closed? Yes, that's possible. Or biting their bone while we teach the word. It is possible that that could stop if we're just patient with it. Timber, you're a good dog. Yeah. See, he stopped. He stopped making noise. He's even a good dog that respects the teaching of the word. All right, I'm almost done. I'll finish up the chapter. I'm losing my focus. Verse 30. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved. And came and told their master all that had been done. The master here is Jesus. I hope we get that. The brother or sister choking other people is to throttle the ministry or stop the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's working on that new lamb's life and all of our efforts are to get that new lamb welcomed and received into our body, if that's the point and you got this person worried about their sins so much, they're throttling the work of the Holy Spirit, get the imagery here that Jesus has. Woe to the people that do that because they're caring more about themselves than about that person and what, what they think that person owes the kingdom of God. We had one person who had come and because we eat a meal, people were like, oh, I feel like I need to help with a meal. <laughs> What's funny about that is it took him like two years to say that, right? Can I help with a meal at all? And it's like, yeah, sure. You know, there's a love box. Do whatever you want. 
you know, no big deal. It's our gift to you. It's God's gift to you. It's God's money. It's God's resources. It's all God. Oh, I just, I just, it occurred to me that I've been eating for like two years and I've never helped out with anything. And didn't that bug you? Like, didn't that bother you that people are just eating food and they don't do anything? And I'm like, not in the least, because I remember when I was a kid, there was a youth pastor that let me leech on to his youth group events and I didn't even go to their church. And it was years of me going to those youth events that brought me in and received me into the kingdom. It was that guy's patience with me just mooching off his, like flat out mooching. You want to pay for my Valley Fair ticket? Yeah, sure, I'll take that. You want to pay for my supper? Yeah, sure, I'll take that. Free stuff. This is awesome. And it's so easy for me to say like, yeah, I didn't know because I was treated that way for a lot longer than two years before I figured out that maybe I should humble myself, right? People will take and take and take and take, but eventually they go, hmm, how can I give back? What can I do? And what a beautiful thing. And when God sees that, it's, it's a glory to him. Those angels get the front of the line with him. He will go after that lost sheep because that's all that matters. He will rejoice when they figure it out and mature in their faith. The whole church should be with God's will in that effort and in rejoicing. The whole church should be focused on receiving people into the kingdom and into the church. It's our, it's our calling and it's our mission. Anyways, the other servants in verse 31 report on this idiot that's throttling the work of the Holy Spirit. Then his master, after he'd called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave and again, this is, you wicked servant. This is not gentle talk from Jesus. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. You said a prayer of salvation and I arrived and forgave you everything. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was very angry or was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Okay, we need to understand that what Jesus is saying in verse 34 is he sent him to hell. This is a guy who was forgiven in verse 32 and he delivered him to torturers until he should pay all that was due him. The 10,000 denarii, if you change, or the, the talents, if you change them into denarii at a rate of about 6,000, that's 164,000 years and 384. That's like 70 times 7. Like, that's an eternity, right? The debt this guy had to pay was unpayable. There's no way he could pay that debt. So for the numbers people, like, the, the actual amount of time would be 164,000 years plus. But this is a warning to believers. There is a great danger when we say, well, God forgave me everything. And then suddenly I can go off and sin. That's compromise. Or I can start telling other believers what to do so that I scare them away from the church. That's legalism. And those two sides of the path, there is a great warning here that we can go to hell if we think it's our place to harass people in the church or to be offended by them. It's a dangerous place to be. Our job is to welcome and receive, to humble ourselves, to deal with our own sin, not with other people's sins. To love even people that go astray. To love people even if it's only one person. To love people that 
ask for forgiveness. We forgive as much as it takes because we're dealing with other people that are in the church. We, we have to just work on that, that we as a church deal with sin directly and that we pray together and that we come here and gather together in God's name. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus summarizes that with a lifestyle of living in the church. There's no greatest other than Jesus. But we do have a role to be forgiving. And watch out and woe to people that don't get this. Because Jesus, honestly, 32 and 34, when you put those together, should A, be evidence to us that it is not about a simple prayer of salvation. It is about a choice that we make. Yes, you need to be saved. But you also then need to start a lifestyle of faith moving towards God as best you can. And for some people that's slower, some people it's faster, some people it's overnight, some people it takes years. But that's God's business because he's working with them. All we're asked to do then is to, re to receive those people and get them into the body. This is a tough teaching. I said that from the beginning. Verse 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. And this is where, you know, Jesus comes back to Peter's thing of how many times do I forgive somebody that I don't like? And Jesus is like, he puts in that phrase, from your heart. You actually have to want to forgive people. That's your job. If you want to know what it takes to be the greatest, figure that out. From your heart, you got to be able to do it. So watch out for people that can't get along with folks and don't know how to forgive people. You know, it's, it's okay to not want to hang out with people. I don't think this may, means we should be fakey, but we should be working on our own stuff so that we're dealing with ourselves so we do actually find a heart to love people and forgive people because it's what we do. So one, one other little conditional thing. Some people would then take that whole teaching and then say, well, if people don't repent, then I don't have to forgive. That's wrong and it's not biblical. Just whether or not they repent is not part of the condition here. If my heavenly Father will also do for each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Our job is to forgive. It doesn't mean we're reconciled with that person. So when you have an unrepentant person or someone that you've, say, excommunicated from your fellowship, we can forgive them, but if they're not repentant, then we can't reconcile with them. Do you know what I'm saying? This is in the Old Testament, the difference between killing and murder. We can have a civic decision that we make about like it, the best thing for this person is to get out of our fellowship until they repent. But we can still forgive that. But we forgive them. We don't hold anything against them. If they walk back through that door in a year, we are the giddy child going, you're back. Welcome back. You know, and all of that, how much courage it takes to come back to a fellowship and with a repentant, humble heart. Think of the courage that takes. You're saying, I was wrong. I screwed up. I need the word. I want to be with you guys. And all they're thinking as they walk up the curb <laughs> and they come into the building is, oh, this is going to be hard, but I need the word. I want it. I need the body of believers. I need the prayer. I need the, I need the good food. And all they're thinking is, everybody's going to be like, I told you so. Everybody's going to be on my case. People aren't going to talk to me. They're going to turn their back to me because I hurt people and I was mean. But then they come in and the response from us is the exact opposite. You're back. A hug, dancing up and down, a giddy child, humble like, we don't need to be better than you. We forgave you when you walked out the door. We're just glad you're back. We've been praying for you ever since. 
and we welcome people back in. I'll review lifestyle number one, be humble. Lifestyle number two, receive others. Lifestyle number three, deal with your sin. Lifestyle number four, love people even when they stray. Lifestyle number five, be ready to forgive other humble people. Deal with that sin. Lifestyle number six, we pray together. Lifestyle number seven, we gather together. Church, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Figure out those seven things. That's divine perfection. That's the seven things you got to work on. I love this because as a veteran believer, I wish somebody had just told me, like, this is what you need to work on. There's nothing in here about going to Siberia. There's nothing in here about doing anything other than just working on yourself. It is not God's command to do anything beyond this until you figure this out. Until you figure out humility, there's not much more to think about. Until you can figure out how to pray with people, go to church with people, God's still watching and his angels are at the front door because he's working on you. And he's working on me if we're still working on these things. I can say once you get to where these things are things that don't convict you anymore, you're like, yeah, I think God's brought me to this place. Then you start asking questions like, how can I minister to other people? That's where your service in the kingdom starts, but it starts in humility. So doing this from your heart thing, I also feel like just to close on this thought, when Jesus says from your heart in verse 35, I feel like he's bringing it all together kind of because that's what he talked about back in chapters 5 through 7 with the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about the positioning of your heart. Only in chapter 7 or in chapter 5, he talks about the, the Ten Commandments are about the heart. They're not about the legal code. Like if you murder somebody in your heart, you're a murderer. And here he's saying if you love someone, in your heart, you're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I feel like he's just brought us kind of full circle back to that idea that it's all in your heart. So, man, Matthew, he's either divinely inspired or one of the most brilliant writers I've ever seen. Just tying this stuff together and linking it all together for us. It's just absolutely incredible. And I lean towards the divinely inspired side of that conversation. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your word, the bread of life. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, living water. And Lord, we love you and we want to serve you. And Lord, Peter said it, but we're all thinking it. How can we be the greatest in the kingdom? And we say that out of love, Lord. We want to be the, want to be the greatest we can for you. And where Peter asked in the flesh, maybe, you know, other Gospels say they were arguing with each other about who amongst them would be greatest. And the way you redirected them with such love and, and so, so directly, but also with such stark terms, Lord, that th this is stuff that's serious. It's something we should be assured of. We should know it well. Lord, we love what you have to say and how you teach us, and thank you for that. Sometimes we need a crisp, extreme word, and sometimes we need your gentle touch. And in chapters like this, we see both sides of that. Lord, we love your teaching. Help us to not just hear this on Sunday morning, but to do it on Monday morning. And Lord, help us to be um, constantly seeking ways to minister and serve other people, not just to serve ourselves. And help us to lift you up in Jesus' name.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.